Welcome to the New Era Property and Business Podcast. I'm Rick Gannon and I'm a property investor, trainer and mentor and best-selling author. If you are interested in any of our property mentoring services, then please contact me via my website, which is www.neweraPropertySolutions.co.uk. And please don't forget to take a look at my five times best-selling book, House Arrest. House Arrest is a manual for new property investors, which shows you how you can replace your income by investing in property. That's available on Kindle, it's available on paperback, and it's also available on the Audible store. Hi everyone, welcome to uh, this week's podcast and you know we're really privileged uh, today to have such an amazing guest with us and today we are going to be talking to Nick Leatherland from Pegasus Property Group which is based in Stoke-on-Trent and Nick is a very experienced property investor and you know without doing him injustice I think what we're going to do is go straight over to Nick so he can tell you all exactly what he does and how he does it. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hi Rick. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to come on your podcast. Um, I've been listening to it since it started, and uh, yeah, it's all great information. So, um, yeah, a little bit about myself. So, um, I'm the director from Pegasus Property. Uh, we're a development company based in Stoke on Trent. Um, our model is quite simple we source properties, we renovate properties, and we let them as well in a uh, hands off, stress free service for other people. So, um, essentially, what that allows me to do is um, build up cash flow, build up liquid. Uh, by kind of consulting other people, really, by sourcing them properties, by renovating them for those clients uh, and letting them uh, all, in, in, all in one bundle, really. So uh, that's kind of what we do. We've been doing it for about uh, two years now, uh, and it's going very well. Um, we've done 30 projects in 21 months. Um, out of those 30 projects, about 25 of those we sourced ourselves, and the other five are ones that um, were just development projects, essentially. Uh, primarily HMOs. Pretty much all 30 of those were HMOs, actually. Um, we manage over 200 high-end uh, ensuite rooms. So that's kind of our niche that we carved out in our local market, was doing uh, high-end properties, ensuites, big communal spaces, uh, high-end finishes. Um, and as a result, it works really well for us. We get good tenants, uh, the rents are high, um, our clients are all happy, um, and, and that's kind of what we do. So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, it sounds like you're really busy. There's a lot of different spurs to your business by the sounds of it, but you've not always done property, have you? Uh, no. So, I mean, my kind of my kind of um, very brief life story really is um, I was born and raised in Swindon uh, in Wiltshire. Um, I played drums. Uh, I love rock music. Um, there was a band in Stoke-on-Trent that were a very good band and they needed a drummer. And I was in touch with them through um, uh, like forum, online forums uh, where a lot of musicians that are into the, the music we were into kind of hang out and talked about different music things. And, uh, yeah, those guys were on there and they said, we need a new drummer. We've got a debut album coming out and we've, we've got tours and, you know, we're potentially getting signed to a record label. So I thought, great. So I packed up my drum kit and uh, travelled up to Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, and the bass player, John, um, he had a flat, so I just crashed in his flat for about two years. <laughs> doing that. So we, we, we recorded an album. It was in HMV. Uh, it sold quite well. Uh, we didn't really make any money, to be honest with you. And uh, I just kind of did that. I kicked about doing that. And then I got to about 19. I was really disenfranchised with the whole music scene. Uh, I didn't really see it going anywhere. 
Um, you know, I was looking at other bands where they had guys that were kind of in their 30s and, you know, they were still playing like local pubs and bars. And it kind of seemed a bit sad because they, they were, you know, stacking shelves in Tesco's by day and then being a rock star by night. And I just thought it was kind of this, a lot of people were like uh, delusional about it. So I kind of saw through all of that and thought, yeah, this isn't a career. This is just a bit of fun. It's just a hobby, really. So, um, so I decided to join the Royal Navy. I'm not sure why I joined the Royal Navy, to be honest with you, but uh, I just walked into the careers office. I was kind of bottom of the barrel at the time, so I didn't really have, I didn't, I didn't leave school with any, uh, I didn't actually go to secondary school as such. So I got expelled uh, in my first year for being too naughty. So um, I didn't really have any GCSEs. I had two GCSEs, which were E and F in English and maths, uh, which, <laughs> which are obviously nothing. Um, so I thought, where can I go? Armed Forces good career prospects. If you work hard, you get promoted. I thought, yeah, that's, that's me. Um, so in I went. Um, so that's when I was 20 years old. Yeah. I joined the submarine service. So I was on nuclear submarines. That is, uh, I mean, <laughs> you have accomplished so much in your life. I mean, you, you, you were a rock star before the age of 19. You had an album out in, in HMV. I mean, that's, that's massive. How long did you spend in total in the Navy then, Nick? Um, yeah, so like I said, I joined when I was 20 um, and uh, I did eight years service. Um, so um, I left in March this year. So 2017, March, I left officially. Um, in the armed forces, when you put your notice in, you've got to do 12 months um, notice. Uh, but because um, cause in my eight year service, I did a lot of deployments. One of the reasons was, which I'll go into in a minute, um, was I wanted to buy more property. So I, I volunteered for as many deployments as I could, really. Um, so as a result, I got promoted quite quickly. Um, I didn't actually take the promotion. I turned it down because I knew I wasn't staying. Uh, I didn't want to go through all of the training process to get that promotion, but I did get promoted quite quickly, which was a great achievement I'm very proud of. Because um, in my branch, typical, typical promotion was about seven to eight years, and I got it within uh, four years. So I was really happy with that. Um, and... Yeah, so I did. I did my eight year service. Um, the, the the kind of the whole where property kind of slots in with this whole story is that um, um, which I talk about in the new ebook that I'm writing actually, which is the developer's refurb manual, uh, which I'll talk about later at the end if that's okay. But um, essentially, I joined up. Uh, I was raised up in a council estate, uh, single mother upbringing. I didn't really have anything going for me. I never had any money. Um, and when I joined, there was a guy called. Uh, Jimmy Kearns and his nickname was TCC which was that C Kearns you can imagine what the C stands for but it was kind of like military military humor uh, but anyway he's called he's called Jimmy Kearns he was a petty officer which is like a sergeant uh, in the army and he was one of the guys uh, that trained us when we were recruits so we're raw recruits we're straight as you know civvy street as they call it straight you know from civilians into the military um, and they, they they like to surround you with very um, impressionable kind of people like role models so the kind of people that do the training in the armed forces tend to be um quite good at what they do um they're, they're specially picked for being uh, instructors basically um so this guy was great you know he, he was scottish he was from glasgow uh he, he come along he was like yeah i've got 10 ounces i'm a millionaire on paper uh, i'm 38 years old i've done 20 years service i've got two years to go when i finish my 22 year service i've got a fat pension i've got 10 ounces giving me income I'm going to go chill on the beach. I'm only four, I'm going to be 40 years old. I'm going to chill on the beach for the rest of my life. And I thought this guy's amazing. He was, he was divorced. So, you know, he was single. He had a nice Mercedes. He had a nice watch. He wore designer clothes. And I just thought this guy's amazing basically because I never, you know, growing up, I didn't really see any <laughs> things like that. 
and I know I know that material stuff's kind of wrong, which which I you know I, I figured out for myself later in my life. But at the time, being twenty years old, I thought this guy's the real deal. And of course, he did it all through property. So I said, Jimmy, how how did you do it? Tell me tell me how you got these properties. And he was just like, it's easy, mate. You just buy crap crap houses and you do them up and you sell them, or you keep the good ones and you rent them out and you make money. It's so it's really easy. And I was just like, okay, so. You know, a kind of combination of like having loads of uh, confidence built into me through the military and then also meeting somebody like him who's actually done it for real. And he wasn't the only one. I met lots of other people like him as well. It seems to be a common theme in uh, in the armed forces to buy to buy property. Um, and since I left, I've met tons of people in property that uh, ex armed forces. It just kind of seems to go with the go with the go with the territory, really. I mean, you live in barracks or a ship or wherever and you've got no overheads. So you're getting paid all this money and you haven't got any outgoings. I mean, I had a, a phone contract I had to pay for. I didn't drive a car. I didn't have to pay for accommodation or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I'm taking home 2K a month net with no overheads. So, of course, you know, I go away on a deployment for six months. You can imagine I come back to a bit of money. And uh, I just started investing that in properties. So, Nick, what's it? I mean, just before we go on to, we're going to talk a little bit, if it's okay, about your your first deal that you did and how you sourced it. But before we do that, I'm just really interested in what what's life like on a submarine because I can't. I'm I'm really claustrophobic, so I'd be no good at doing that at all. I just it would just drive me nuts. But um, mm. I've never been on a submarine, and I I imagine it being very tight enclosed spaces with lots of people around you. I mean, obviously you've done it for many years. I mean. What is it like? You know, what, what's the the real deal with it? Um, it's it's hard to explain. I mean, I think you got to be you got to be a particular kind of person that can be able to do that job in the first place to be able to actually um, you know spend long times of you know a lot of time under the water. So I served on the Vanguard class submarines, which are the um, SSBN, which is a ballistic submarine. So the ones that carry the Trident, two D five nuclear missiles. Uh, which is a British missile, British-made missile. The warheads are um, they're basically rented off the Americans, so we kind of lease lease the warheads off them. Um, I think the only other European country which has um, uh, their own warheads, not including Russia, is uh, France. France have their own independent nuclear program, so the, the French warheads on the missiles are actually French. So our warheads aren't um, British, basically they're American, but they are totally independent. We have full control of those warheads. Um, there's a lot of reports in media about we don't have control over our missiles, which is complete nonsense. Um, so anyway, so that's that's what I did. The submarine was about 18,600 tons displacement, uh, which is obviously huge. It was as long as a football field. Um, it had about 180 people on board. Uh, we used to work six hours on, six hours off, constant shift rotation for the whole time you was away. Uh, and the most time I spent underwater in one go was about 14 weeks. So I spent 14 weeks solid underwater, uh, doing six hours on, six hours off constantly. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of what it's like. It's quite, it's not physically demanding, but it's very mentally demanding. Yeah, Do you have to go through a transition phase when you come back onto dry land, or is it something that you know you can literally get off the submarine and and just feel normal? Um, they do let you just straight off. Yeah, so you literally. You pull up alongside after your tour. You do about two days where you keep the submarine before you hand it over to another crew. Um, and for those two days, you're kind of just like getting back into being on dry land and, you know, you're kind of doing some duties and things like that. Uh, and you're getting ready to hand the submarine over to the other crew. So it's quite exciting. You, you know, you can't wait to get off. And, uh, yeah, you, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to explain. But 
I mean, I imagine most people listening to this podcast have probably never been to prison. So that's kind of, I've never been to prison either, but that's how I'd imagine it. If you've been, if you've done some time in, in jail and you come out, uh, you know, having that first Starbucks coffee and having that first uh, McDonald's burger and all those kinds of small things, you know, new music on the radio, you haven't heard music or seen a movie for, you know, three to four months. So um, there's all music on the radio and you're going, oh, this is a new song. Everyone's going, mate, that song's old now. Everyone hates it. <laughs> or, or, you know, or you go to the cinema and a, a movie's come out and it's gone out the cinema and it's on DVD. And it's just mad. It's just it's just a bit of a weird thing. It's, it's um, And the hardest thing is that everybody's lives move on, but yours doesn't. Yours basically has a pause button when you go underwater and then you come back and nothing's really changed for you. Um, the time goes very quickly when you're down there. You kind of go into a weird state of mind, which is almost like, I would, I would describe it as almost like meditation. You go into this meditative state of mind where the, 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 the hours go by and the days go by and everything happens very quickly. And before you know it, you know, there's two weeks left and you're going, wow, I've been down here for 12 weeks now. Wow. <laughs> you know, and, and, and yeah, yeah. And it's literally like that. And you forget, you forget what day it is. The only, the only way you know what day it is is based on what food is on. So every day has got a specific uh, meal. So when you wake up and then you go and have um, whatever, like your, your lunch or something or, or your tea, because it's because it's a curry, you know, it's a Wednesday, for example, or because it's fish and chips, you know, it's a Friday. If it's a steak, it's a Saturday. If it's a roast dinner, it's a Sunday. If it's Monday, it's a, a theme night. So it's normally like a Mexican night or an Italian or whatever. So, you know, that's basically how it goes, mate. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, it sounds really, really interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us, Nick. I think, you know, um, I, I certainly find it really interesting. I could talk to you uh, for hours about that. But um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about your property then. So, um, so you, you did your time uh, in the Navy and you, you, you got motivated um, by, by um, this chap and you went out and started looking for deals. So how did that work for you? How did you find your first deal and what was it? Yeah, right. So, um, okay. So I'm 21 years old. I've been in the Navy for like about a year at this point. Um, I've saved a load of money. Um, the Royal Navy had something called the, um, what's it called now? Um, advanced service of pay. Um, something like that. Anyway, it basically, it means that you can take a loan out from the Navy, which is interest free and you can use that to help you buy your first house. Um, so I got eight and a half thousand pounds, um, LSAP, that's what it's called. Long service advance of pay LSAP, uh, the army get it and the RAF get it as well. But I think in the army, you've got to do something like three or four year service before you're allowed to access it. But in the Navy, you can access it from day one. Um, I don't know why that, I don't know why it's like that, but that's the way it is. So I, I, I got that money. I had a load of savings. So I had about 20 K in total. Um, and I thought, right, I'm going to buy myself a house to live in. So my first house was the first one that I bought. Uh, to live in myself and um, I got it for £75,000 it was by the hospital um, I did about 5k's worth of works on it and um, and that was that and, and I moved in there and things like that I was never there so um, I, had a, I had a couple of um, lodgers move in who were my friends and they were helping pay for the, the bills and the mortgage etc um, and then I refinanced it and they were re- refinanced £95,000 which I couldn't believe so um, you know I thought wow that, that was easy so I think I got a bit lucky on the first one um, sort of fell on my feet a little bit. So I refinanced it. I pulled about, um, I can't remember how much it was now, about 15K back out of that deal. And I went and bought uh, my first buy to let. So my first buy to let was by the university and it was £60,000. Um, I put a 15K deposit down, which was a 25% deposit. Um, and I spent about £10,000 of savings from the Navy again on that house. Uh, and I had three rooms there and I rented the three rooms out to three girls. 
who who were doing second, third, and fourth year at university. So they stayed there for three years solid, paying me £330 per room. So that was £990 income. My mortgage on it was about 150 quid, interest only. Um, you know, I wasn't on a HMO product. I was on a normal buy-to-let, and I was doing it in a naughty way, but I didn't really know. I was 21 years old, so I didn't really know the difference at the time, to be honest with you. Um, and, and, and that was that, and I was probably clearing a good five to six hundred pound a month net off that one house. Um, I did, I'd done it to a good standard. I thought, yeah, I want this to be a nice house to live in. I'll admit it was magnolia walls and brown carpet. I didn't really know any better at the time. I just thought that's the way everyone else did it. Um, and that was that really. So yeah, I, 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 again, I landed on my feet because there was a guy doing a house up next door. He was a landlord from London and, um, he, he took me under his wing a little bit. So, uh, I was on, I had about two months leave at the time, um, cause I just done a tour. So I basically spent most of the time around his house, helping him do his house up. Um, and he, he shared all his trades with me. So gas man, sparky laborers, those sorts of things. So they finished his house and went into my house next door and did my house up for me as well. Um, yeah, so wow. that's how, that, that's how that happened. Yeah. And then, um, I just, uh, over the next sort of, um, six years, uh, six, six, seven years, I just saved money, bought another one, saved money, bought another one, refinanced them, bought another one. And I just kept doing them like that until um, I reached financial freedom at about 24, 25 years old. Um, but of course, you know, that's that's like kind of subjective, isn't it? What is financial freedom? Well, to me, basically, I replaced my, my income from the Navy so I could leave the Navy and still take home two grand a month. So that's what financial freedom was to me at the time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's basically. So your, your business, um, you got, you know, you got Pegasus property group. Um, how did that form then? So you, you've left the Navy now, um, you're doing really well. You've got some HMOs and you're doing some buy to lets. You've, you've been mentored if you like by, um, by this chap that, that, that was doing his house up as well. At what point did you think that, you know, you wanted to grow and, and develop what you have now? Um, yeah, so I mean, I think I think kind of what happened was was that um, you know I've got these properties and I'm really loving property. I'm thinking this is really cool. Um, I'm going on um, different websites and stuff where you know I'm learning about property. I'm reading books. I'm really digesting all of this information. I'm being a real sponge, and I'm kind of thinking maybe this is my true calling in life because I didn't really know. I don't know, but a lot of people probably feel the same way. But when I grew up, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life, and you know I failed academically. Um, massively failed academically, um, etc. So, you know, I went into the Navy, like I say, that gave me a new lease of life. That really taught me a lot about myself and about what it is to be a good person. Um, and it gave me an income. And I met all these great role models, made these great friends. And, um, you know, I kind of started figuring out through property that, and I think a lot of that was driven by the communities. So I, start, I started um, mixing with different people on Facebook and things like that. And, um, you know, I came across great people like David Clouter. David Clouter's on Facebook. He's posting away. I'm thinking this guy's this guy knows his stuff. He's really cool. He was very approachable. I spoke to him quite a lot on Facebook um, about music actually because he was a, a DJ and he started Total Rock Radio back in the uh, I think it was in the 80s. He was one of the founders of Total Rock Radio, which is if you're into rock music, is a really well known station. So I, was, I thought this guy was amazing basically. Um, and he took me under his wing a little bit and told me a lot about a lot about property really about the communities and the different cliques that exist and the different training groups that exist and i'll admit to you i was very anti um i was very like anti-establishment anti-guru anti-training establishment um i saw all of the negative side of it not the positive side so there's me networking integrating into the communities 
I started realizing that I had a lot to give to the communities. So, um, you know, I, I was very giving with my time and with my information. I wanted to see everybody else succeed. Um, I like seeing other people succeed. It, it makes me feel good. Um, I think that comes from the military as well, some of the ethos that was drilled into me. Um, but, yeah, no, so essentially, you know, David Clouter introduced me to a guy called John Colcloth, who's my now business partner. Uh, we started talking. We got on very well. And we had um, we had uh, similar kind of uh, goals and visions, really similar ethics and similar ways to do things. <clears throat> and um, so we we sat down one day, and I said, "Look, this navy thing's pissing me off now. I can't be bothered with this anymore. Uh, you know, I've got a nice income from property. I want to do property full time. Do you want to go into business together? I think we, you know, I think there's a gap in the market here. I don't see anybody else doing HMOs to a good standard. Uh, HMOs are a real big thing right now. Everybody wants to do it." I think we could piggyback off the off this trend basically and build a business off it. So that's what we did. So we started Pegasus Property um, about two years ago, which is when I put my notice in basically. Um, and yeah, so it's and it's gone from strength to strength. Yeah, you've done amazing, Nick. I mean, you know, I do uh, I do look at your your case studies when you post them on the you know the various forums, and the level of detail that you go to looks outstanding. It looks absolutely amazing. So you know, well done for that. Really well done. Um, I don't, don't want to blow my own trumpet too much, but I, I just think one of the one of the secrets to our success um, is 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 really simple. It's just we're we're transparent, we're ethical, we're very clear with people. And one of the reasons for that is because because we do the sourcing and the renovation and the lettings, we've got accountability at all stages of the project. So a lot of people that I see sourcing, they don't have accountability for the numbers. They can just say, this is what it's going to get in rent and this is what it will cost to renovate. But once they've got their sourcing fee and you've got the lead, it's kind of like, well, you're on your own now, mate. And, you know, and that's and, and then and that's kind of how it goes or people that source and do the renovations, but don't do the lettings. Again, there's no accountability for actually getting the tenants in and making the money they said it would make. So because we've got that accountability, we have to keep our numbers realistic. We can't polish the numbers. We can't sensationalize the numbers because if we do and we have done that a few times, not deliberately, but by accident, we've got the numbers a bit wrong with paid the money back like if a renovation went over what we said it would be we've given the money back for that so you know and that's how we built our business up is just by being super transparent so that's kind of the secret really um so if people um approached you and said look you know i, I want I, I don't know much about property i want to get involved in the hmo market um, mm-hmm. i'm happy to invest anywhere am i right in thinking that your service is a whole one-stop service so you would source the property renovate it to the required standard then uh, let it out to tenants and manage it after that as well yeah exactly yeah so it's basically a one-stop shop start to end hands-free stress-free service so we're literally finding the property do the renovation works and then let it for you as well so it's kind of like it's kind of like turnkey but with turnkey investments, you actually get the finished product. So we go one step before that process and say, well, you buy the property in a bad condition and um, we're renovating for you. So they get the capital uplift and the capital gain from that. And what we get is, is we get a sourcing fee, we get a project management fee, and we get our lettings management income as well at the end. So that's what we make. So that that process, um, that kind of strategy um, builds us cash flow and builds us liquid, which we then invest in our own projects. Yeah, sounds like a great service. You know, um, we spoke a bit about networking. We're going back just a little bit now. Now, I know myself, you know, from a a services background. um, I I didn't like 
any idea at all of networking with anybody. Um, for me, it was you know almost like a swear word. The last thing I wanted to do was go into a room full of strangers and talk about stuff I didn't understand. Um, you know, what advice could you give to new investors about networking and how important do you think it is, Nick? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important, but I think there's more than one way to skin a cat. So um, I I I'm, I felt the same way as you, really. So I went to my first couple of networking events locally. Uh, which I got, I got kind of dragged along to them because I've never been to one before. And uh, there was a local lady who um, is is well known for doing HMOs around my area, and she got chatting to me on Facebook, and she's very nice. And she she said, Nick, why don't you come along to uh, one of the local networking events? And I was kind of like, what's that sort of thing, you know? Um, and she said, oh, it's where all the landlords go, and there's a speaker, like an expert speaker. And I thought, okay, yeah, sounds cool. So I went along, and I found it very uncomfortable. I just didn't really like it. Um, I think I'm a bit of an introvert anyway, so I didn't really like um, talking to all these people. I didn't really feel that I could get my get across what I wanted to say within such a short period of time. Um, and also I found it to be very noisy. So I just found it quite hard. So my method of networking was more online based. So talking to people through the internet, I'd meet people one on one for coffee. So I'd invite people to Stoke-on-Trent to come in, meet me and check out my properties. And I also, I also um, would travel and see people as well in their areas. So, you know, I, I must have met hundreds and hundreds of people through this method. And yes, it takes a very long time to do that. But I'd go and meet somebody for a good hour to two hours solid with no no interruptions. And we would we would understand each other by the end. And you'd make a friend, you'd make a good contact, um, somebody you'd keep in touch with. So that was my method of networking. My method of networking was online based in, in one-on-one networking. That's really interesting because, you know, most people would say, you know, stereotypically networking is going to a networking meeting and, you know, meeting other people in a room uh, over coffee. But that's a great way of looking at it. You know, there are more than one way, you know, to skin a, to skin a cat. Um, and, and obviously you've just, uh, you just mentioned that, you know, you can do that online as well. So for those people that don't like going out too much, then maybe that is a great way. And there's loads of um, really good properties groups out there as well that people can join in order to do just that so you know for the listeners if you haven't joined any property groups get a have a look on facebook there are loads of groups i'm not going to name them all here because i just don't have time but you know get on the groups and say hi and you know all of them are going to you know they're going to welcome you into the group um so you know that, that's another great way of doing things nick let's talk a little bit back onto property again now so um at the moment, it's quite a topical subject um, about ensuite rooms, and I either love them or or you hate them. I think they're a bit marmite. What's your view on putting ensuite rooms into HMOs? Yeah, I mean, so we do we do primarily all ensuite HMOs. Um, so obviously, I'm going to be in the in the ensuite camp, um, but. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not stupid enough that I don't understand both sides of the argument. So I, I think I'm quite I think I'm quite balanced, really, and neutral um, when it comes to kind of my my argument when it comes to why hate uh, why I think on suites are good. Um, but essentially, what it comes down to is it comes down to what area you're in. So I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer. I think that if on suites is the norm in your area, I think you kind of need to do that. Um, having said that, um, I ran quite an interesting survey a couple months ago. So I surveyed approximately 500 tenants um, and those 500 tenants. So this was the question, right? So it'd be interesting to see what you think, Rick. So the question was, if you had to choose one of the four following things and only one of them, what's the most important to you? So the, um, the, the questions were, um, or the answers rather were, um, you know, would you rather have good management? Would you rather have locate, like good location? Would you rather have um, an ensuite or would you rather have 
um, cheaper rents. Mm. So, mm. Rick, what do you think? So you, you can only choose one. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, I like all of the above, um, but I think you know, it does come down to, um, certainly for us and our ethos as well, would be that um, you need to have somebody at the end of the phone if something goes wrong. You need to know that you're looked after and there's a real person there. So for me, it would be down to management and service. Okay, so I asked this same, this same question to landlords. What do you think their response was? What do you think the most popular? What, what do you think the landlords thought? I don't know. Go on, enlighten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I asked all the landlords, and all the landlords said en suite's the most important thing to a tenant. Um, I asked tenants, and it was the least important thing. The most important thing was good management, followed by, um, followed by uh, location, rents, and then en suite was at the very bottom. Oh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here going, yeah, tenants want en suites, SD one suites, and actually... Um, that's not the case. They don't necessarily want on suites. They obviously want all the above. Um, but if they are to prioritise, good management is key. Mm. So, you know, I think I think the real answer is 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 it depends on what area you are. If on suites is normal where you are, and you need to be competitive and you need to compete with other people by not doing on suites, I think would be a bit of a shot in the foot. Now, you know, uh, Julie Maurice, for example, we get on very well. By the way, uh, we're good friends. Um, you know, we're basically um, opposite ends of the spectrum in this argument you know julian's argument is um you know um against en-suites and mine is for en-suites and um you know his his kind of reasoning is is that you know in his area he's doing very high-end looking properties um so he can get away with not doing en-suites also en-suites cost a lot of money to maintain so i get that but um if you're in another area where all the hmos are actually quite high-end already and they've got en-suites um, you know, you can't, in my opinion, you can't really not, not do it basically, because if you don't, um, you know, you're going to be in the middle part of the market. And when you look at, um, any market, any successful brand, they operate at one end or the other end, they're either cheap like Lidl or they're on the expensive end like Marks and Spencer's. You don't get many in the middle because the middle is where everybody else is. Um, all the average stuff is there. So if you're going to do, um, cheap rents and not have on suites, but make it look high end that's probably going to be really successful. Or if you're going to operate at the opposite end of the spectrum where you're going to be super high end and you're going to have on suites, I think you're going to be successful too. So, you know, it just kind of depends what you want to do. Um, you're probably going to ask the next question, which is going to be about council tax banding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I predict that. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the council tax banding issue per bedroom is, is a bit of a hot topic right now, um, as, as you said before. So, um, I spoke to my local VOA and they basically said they've got they've got absolutely no intention of bringing in council tax banding per bedroom in Stoke-on-Trent. Reason being is, and I quote, it would destroy the local economy because our specific economy around here is very reliant on um, Eastern Europeans working in the factories and warehouses. Um, a lot of the hospital workers are foreign. Um, you know, so basically a lot of our HMO tenants in our city are foreign. And, you know, if, if you think about it, why would a foreign person want to stay in a HMO? It's quite obvious, really, if you're as a foreign person going to another country, you know, are you going to go rent a house where you've got to get, you've got to sign up for a 12-month Virgin Media package and a, a 12-month Sky package and you've got to do council tax and, do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's a bit of a headache. So having this, having this little stepping stone, like a little landing pad where you can just come along, it's like a hotel, but it's cheaper than a hotel and it's self-catering. That's kind of what a HMO is. You make friends, you get to know the lay of the land. And then after six months or 12 months, you might move to another house or you might move to another area or you might go rent a house or whatever. But that's kind of what H HMO is. It's kind of like a bit of a, it's a stepping stone. It's a bit of a landing pad for people to come into a new area without knowing anybody. Yeah. So, 
So when, when you can get into the headspace of your customer, which is the tenant, and you understand them, um, I think you can be successful. And, you know, I think a lot of them want en suites. They want to have their own space. They want to have their own bathroom. Um, we have shared kitchens because that's how they socialize. They cook together. We have open planned uh, kitchens and lounges, deliberately open plan, because um, that's, the, you know, it just basically brings people together a little bit more. Nick, I know that... Um I don't know if you still do this, but you used to do like an onboarding, um, almost like a, an event for your tenants, didn't you? Where you used to bring people together and give them welcome packs and sort of show them the properties, etc. Is that something that you still do? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're quite systemized. So uh, we have these systems in place where, um, I mean, legally, the agent has to show um, the tenants certain aspects of the property anyway. Things like testing the fire alarms and things like that um, and getting them to sign for it. So that's normal anyway. Um, but we used to do a welcome pack where they got like a bottle of wine and a bottle of water and they got some like little goodies and stuff. And we stopped doing that just because, um, you know, the feedback from the tenants was they weren't really bothered about it. So what we started doing was we started going around local businesses, getting vouchers, uh, which has been really successful. So, you know, we, most I think about 70 percent of our tenants are women. So we go and um, go to beauty salons and, you know, those sorts of places. And um, we've got an agent that works for us called Ria. And um, she used to work in House of Fraser and she had her own department there. So she's very um, outgoing. She's very, you know, uh, extroverted. Um, and she loves going around all the local businesses saying, hey, can I get a voucher? You know, and we'll put them in our houses and we've got all these tenants and they're just throwing the vouchers at us, as you can imagine. Yeah, 20% off. Yeah, 50% off. Yeah. So um, we put them all into a welcome card. So we give those to the tenants now. So that doesn't cost us anything. That's, That's a fantastic cool. idea. Yeah, yeah, and it, it gets them down, um, you know, it gets them down the, the, the local, the local um, whatever shop, you know, and they start socialising with people, local people and stuff like that. So, yeah, that works very well. So we do that. Uh, with regards to the events, yeah, we used to do like a, a cheese board night and things like that. But um, to be honest with you, mate, as we started growing and we started expanding, it's just been harder and harder to do those things. Um, you know, yeah. certainly when we first started out and we only had a couple HMOs, it was quite easy to do. But now that we've got about, we've got over 200 rooms now, so... Um, that's about 45 HMOs, I believe. So it's 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 a different beast now, unfortunately. Yeah, it's nice to have, isn't it? Um, but as you grow, you know, there's only a certain amount of things that you are still able to do. Um, yeah. Although, you know, tenants are and always will be the most important thing, um, you know, in our portfolio because they are our customers. But you're still giving. You're still giving them vouchers, which I think is, is admirable. You know, Nick... Um, how hard is it to run HMOs? I mean, I know lots of people and lots of people will approach me and, um, and they, they, they don't want to move forwards for lots of different reasons. Um, you know, there's, there were quite a few things holding them back. And one of which um, um, is, is quite a popular one is that they don't like managing tenants and, and they feel that HMOs will be more of a, um, a burden for them, although they are better cash flow. What's your view on running HMOs? Can they be passive? Um. Yeah, I mean, you, I think you have to heavily systemize to be able to run HMOs effectively. Um, and that's why a lot of local letting agencies shy away from HMO management, or they used to, when it wasn't, when they started realizing how profitable it was, they started entering the market. But, you know, I can remember a good four years back, five years back, lo local letting agents would say things like, you know, we wouldn't touch a HMO with a barge pole. And why would they? Because they can just manage all these single lets to get, a, you know, a long term um you know ast in there and they just forget about it and it's a nice easy income for them whilst a hmo on the other hand i think hmos back in the day were very low end you know i think that the the professional market for hmos kind of started about 10 years ago now properly you know and as of the past three years it's kind of exploded 
So before then, HMOs were just like low-end students, DSS, that kind of thing. Why would you want to manage that? I mean, it's going to be an absolute bloody headache. So, and, and, and I understand because these letting agents, they're not geared up for this stuff. They're, they haven't got the systems. They're still using paper. They're still, you know, it's just, it's just they've got crap systems in place. So, you know, when you're managing a HMO, it's all about systems. Being systemized is key. Being able to have automated things in place, which does the work for you. Having even just little things like lockout systems, handyman response systems in place. <clears throat> I mean, I know you, you, Rick, are very good at this. This is one of the things that you specialize in. So you know exactly where I'm coming from. But yeah, little things like, um, for example, having a notice board with a handyman's number on there. You know, any maintenance issues, please call this number. Don't call me, basically. <laughs> you know, and that straight away takes a lot of the burden off you. Uh, lockout systems, having lockout systems in place. The handyman can hold keys. A cleaner can hold keys. Uh, whatever, you can have a lockbox system. You could have a out-of-hours um, um, call service, for example, where, you know, call Miss Jones or whatever they're called, .com, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they call, they, call, they call the office number and it diverts it to a call Miss Jones service where they answer and say, hey, uh, hey, Pegasus Property, Lettings, you know, how can I help you? And they say, oh, I'm locked out. Oh, what, what house are you in? I'm in so-and-so house. And what's your name, please? Right, yep, the, the code is da-da-da. And the lockbox is outside the front, and that 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 lets them in basically. And you, you know, so you can do you can do things like that. You can have a lockbox outside every single bedroom if you wanted to. You could have key codes instead of having actual locks. So you know, there's 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 lots of ways of systemizing. Um, a good system that we use is that our cleaner, because um, she's in every property every week. She's our eyes and ears on the ground. So our, our agents can't be everywhere at once. So yeah, those guys do um, quarterly inspections where they do full property inspections with software where they take all the pictures and it uploads it as a PDF onto our system, all that kind of stuff. But because we've got a cleaner there every single week, she's she enters the property and goes for a check-off list. She checks under the sink for leaks. Um, you know, she checks any communal damages, fire exits are clear, any light bulbs that are blown, just little things like that that allows us to keep on top of, um, you know, constant maintenance, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and HMO also stands for high maintenance operation. Mm-hmm. It is a high maintenance operation. You know, you've got to run it like a hotel. You've got, to, you've got to keep on top of everything. You've got to make sure it's always to a high standard and it's always operating well. Because do you find, Nick, that the tenants do report everything that goes wrong in the house? No, not at all. So, um, you know, having a system in place like a cleaner who goes around and checks for these things is really important because otherwise, um, you know, a good example could be um, a door um, is is slightly um, warped or something, you know, or, or the hinges come a bit loose. So the door is scraping on the carpet every single time they open and shut that door and it starts catching, which means it doesn't shut properly with the, with the and it's a fire door. So it becomes, a, it becomes a health and safety issue and it's also causing damage to that carpet every single time it scrapes on it. Now, if an agent is only going there every three months to check on things, you know, and they might even miss it, for example, because of human error. So it could be six months before anybody picks up on it, for example, you know, and that dam- that carpet is now damaged. And uh, do you know what I mean? So having a cleaner who goes around and checks those things on a weekly basis allows us to keep on tops of certainly the communal stuff. Now, bedroom maintenance, I mean, you know, if they don't report it and our agents only go around every three months, we can't pick up on those things until until they go in and see that problem and then it gets obviously sorted um so that's, that's kind of how it goes yeah yeah what do you think the future lies for hmos is it something that's going to stay around for a bit yeah for sure i mean you know i'm 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 uh, quite an optimistic person i think this is only the beginning um i think i've heard a lot of noise from people saying that hmos becoming saturated and things like that and 
I think that's a load of nonsense. I think we're way, 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 way off saturation. I mean, if I look at my own area, it's hard to predict how many HMOs there, like how many HMO rooms exist. I know how many HMO licensed HMOs there are because of the council register. So I'm able to work out how many of those exist. So, you know, having spoken to the environmental health officer who issues the HMO license and asking his opinion, he said to me, well, Nick, you know, there's 25,000 students in the city. We've got three universities. There's probably, you know, maybe 5,000 to 10,000 professional HMO rooms. So I'm sort of sitting there going, wow, there must be tens of thousands of HMO rooms in the whole city. And I've only got 200 of them. So I've got 1% of the market. Mm. <laughs> so I'm sitting there thinking there's there's a lot of, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more movement to go yet before saturation yeah, yeah. has hit. And I, and I feel that um, without putting people down, I feel that a lot of the people that make noise over saturation, I think they've bought properties in a bad area. I think they've done them to a bad standard. I think that a lot of people in property approach HMOs with this mentality, which is buy and sell mentality, which is kind of like, do, do a bit of a half-assed job of the renovation um, and then sell it on. But instead of selling it, they're keeping it. And guess what? Two years later, the house is absolutely wrecked. There's no damp proof course. They didn't do any roof works. There's leaks. There's They didn't do a full central heating system. They didn't do a full rewire. So there's problems with the electrics. The heating system's always breaking. You know, uh, a classic example is they put a new boiler on, but they don't change the rads or pipe work. So, do you know what I mean? And, and you, know, you know where I'm coming from. So those are the people that I find are making noise in the market right now. They're the people that didn't do it properly, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and all, all the people I know who do it properly, they've all got four rooms. They've all got high occupancy rates. They've, they haven't got any issues. So obviously, some people are doing it right. Some people are doing it wrong. So I think if you're going to do it, you've got to do it right, basically, or don't do it at all. Yeah, I think yeah, we have to adapt, don't we? Like anything we do in life, um, competition is always going to come around the corner. And as long as we do better service, better standard, um, you know, and just all round better properties then you know i think personally that hmos are here to stay we live on an island we're not building any more land um we have an ever-increasing population and we've got a massive um housing stock crisis you know so yeah i mean i'm absolutely with you on that nick i mean you mentioned earlier about education and reading and things like that so i know that you do like to to read books and, and i know you've read quite a lot because of your service uh, in the royal navy so what's what was the last book that you read so um i'm currently reading a um uh what do you call it like what what's it called when you get four books together it's like a terror terror something on it okay. anyway whatever that word is <laughs> <laughs> whatever that word is for a four book series um so i'm currently reading i, I just finished um simon scarrow's uh, generals books which is uh, following uh, wellington and napoleon bonaparte from when they're born right up to when they meet at waterloo on the battlefield oh. now i know that's not a business book but uh, it kind of, it kind of it's, it's more like a life book because it's very interesting about um, you know their their upbringing and the the world they were in and how they basically went from being um, you know kind of lowly aristocrats or whatever you want to call them up to you know one being an emperor of France and uh, the other one the other one obviously beating him on the battlefield at Waterloo. So I find those books really interesting. I love yeah. history. I think there's a lot to learn from history. I think you can apply some of those lessons into business for sure. Um, things like you know courage and motivation and and these people that you read about who did these great feats and you think I can do anything if these if these guys can do this I can do anything as well. Now the last business book I actually read was um, uh, the systemization book by John Paul, uh, which was fantastic. So I just finished reading that. That only came out about a week ago. Um, I've ordered your book as well, Rick. So I'm yet to read that, but it's on order. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> so, um, you know, you like your books. What is your all-time favourite book? What's the best book you've ever read? 
uh, you know, I don't want to be cliche, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad's the first one I read, and that's the one that got me going. Um, I don't know what it is about that book, but it's it's so simple, and it, there's a lot of controversy around that book, and I don't think there needs to be. I think the message is very simple, and it's very easy. I don't think you need to read between the lines too much. It's just like basically putting, putting into perspective the different ways of thinking, the way that a rich person or wealthy person thinks, and the way that a, a person with no money thinks. And to me reading that book was a real revelation because so I was just like, yeah, this is so right. I mean, um, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually got a quite, quite a funny upbringing just because, you know, I was raised by a single mother in a council estate with not much money. And my dad, who I used to see pretty much every weekend, he was a good father. Um, he, he was a business person. So I kind of had a bit of a rich dad, poor dad upbringing in a way. You know, I had my dad who, who ran a very successful business, um, but he wouldn't give anyone a penny. He was always very much go earn it yourself, basically. That was, his, that was his attitude. I've got to earn it myself. You go earn it yourself. I'm not going to give you any handouts. You know, if you want some pocket money, you can cut the grass. You can, you can cut the hedges back. You can clean the, do you know what I mean? You can clean. So I'd have to work for my pocket money. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd look at him with his, his nice Porsche 911 and his nice fancy house in the countryside. And I was thinking, yeah, I want that. I want that one day. You know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, we asked this question to, to everyone on the podcast and Rich Dad, Poor Dad is number one um, and it is the most popular book that people say is, is their all-time most inspirational book. Absolutely, and also E-Myth is very good. I read E-Myth uh, a couple of years ago. That, again, was a real, um, you know, put things in perspective for me, just kind of the different, the different mentalities between, um, you know, like a business owner and um, someone who's self-employed, the kind of two differences between somebody who works in their business and somebody that works on their business. Um, and that book really put that into perspective for me as well. Brilliant. Uh, Nick, yeah. if people want to reach out to you, and I know that you do have services and products that you can offer people, uh, is there a website they can contact you on? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, my website is pegasuspg.com. Um, and um, I also run a business community called Unity, uh, and that's unitycommunity.co.uk. So they're my two websites. Or you can reach me on Facebook as well. I'm pretty active on Facebook. So feel free to find me and add me. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you. You are a wealth of knowledge. You know, I could I could probably sit here all day um, and, and talk to you, you know, and shoot the breeze about property and everything that's in it. Um, one last question we like to ask everybody, cat or dog? Cat or dog? Um, well, well, dogs, because I've got a dog called Floyd. He's a German shepherd. Um, so yeah, I love dogs. So um, you're a dog man. Yeah. I'm a dog man. I mean, I, when I was brought up, we had a cat called Pebbles, which was a little um, black cat, and we had that for most of my upbringing. I mean, he lived to about 18 years old, so he was a really old cat by the time he passed away. And um, um, yeah, with the second the second I put my notice in in the navy, I went and got a dog because I always wanted one, and I got him from a puppy. Um, you I know, remember I remember seeing him on uh, on Facebook when you bought him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's my uh, he's my little bundle of joy. Fantastic, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving up the time today. I know that the listeners are going to get so much value from this. And listeners, if you need to contact Nick, he's given you all of his details. Feel free to reach out. He's, um, he's a really open guy, and uh, and I'm sure that um, you know he can help you in in any way that he can. Nick, thank you so much indeed for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's been a real pleasure. Lovely. Thank you, Nick. If you are interested in any of our property mentoring services, then please contact me via my website, which is www.neweraPropertySolutions.co.uk. And please don't forget to take a look at my five times best-selling book, 
House Arrest. House Arrest is a manual for new property investors which shows you how you can replace your income by investing in property. That's available on Kindle, it's available on paperback and it's also available on the Audible store.